It's been a great week. Not without its uh, sorrows, not without its difficulties, uh, not without its disappointments, but uh, to reflect on the price that was paid, to reflect on the, uh, the way that Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him, uh, to share in the Lord's Supper, uh, to reflect pointedly on the crucifixion, and now uh, on the resurrection. It's been a good week. It's been a good week. Uh, wish we had more of them. Uh, during the year, uh, but we could. Uh, I want to take a look at John uh, chapter 21. Uh, I need to, you know, just for the sake of complete clarity, bring you up to date. Uh, the backstory is that on Friday afternoon, Jesus was uh, crucified, uh, having celebrated the Passover the night before. And during the ordeal of his various mock trials, Peter, Uh, One of the disciples, in many ways the lead disciple, um, hanging around through those mock trials, denies that he knows Jesus three times. You might be familiar with this. Uh, Jesus, in fact, told Peter that such would be the case. Uh, In response to Peter's boasting at the Last Supper of his courage, of his faithfulness, and even of the singularity of his devotion, uh, he said, though all fall away, I will never fall away. Uh, In response to that, Jesus told him, you know, actually before the cock crows, uh, you'll deny me three times. And Luke's account actually tells us that Jesus and Peter made eye contact across the courtyard uh, during that third denial, just before the cock crowed that they saw each other. That's only mentioned in Luke, but it's riveting. Uh, When it hit Peter, what he had done, uh, the Bible tells us that he went out and wept bitterly. So that was Friday. On Sunday morning, there's a bit of chaos when it is discovered that the tomb is empty. In John's telling of that story, Mary is the first one at the tomb. She finds it empty. She runs back and tells the disciples, she and Peter and John race back to the tomb, find that it is empty. Uh, John and Peter make their way back, stunned by this, ostensibly John believing, but not really sure about that. Uh, But then Jesus appears to weeping Mary. Uh, He's initially unrecognized, but he calls her by name, and uh, she is the first believer Uh, in the resurrected Lord. She runs and tells the disciples. Later that night, uh, Jesus appears to the disciples, and then eight days later, he does so again. And sometime after uh, those events, this chapter takes place. It's an unusual time. You know, we often try to speculate. Uh, The Bible is thin on information. Uh, Jesus does not rise from the dead and then hang out with his disciples continually. Uh, He appears to them supernaturally and yet explicitly physically, Uh, and those times when he appears to them are really worth uh, paying attention to. Uh, The Apostle Paul actually mentions that at one point during this post-resurrection, pre-ascension period of time, Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time. So there's a lot that we don't know, uh, but let's hang on and let's pay close attention to what we do know. 
let's read together. I'm going to read the first 17 verses of John chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Now, here's what happened. Let's just unpack it a little bit. Uh, The language is a little bit uh, formal. Sometimes it's fun to go read paraphrases or uh, colloquial translations in passages like this. But uh, the disciples have made their way back to Galilee. The Sea of Tiberias is another name for the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. uh, But they've made their way back up to Galilee as instructed. And then seven of them are mentioned here Uh, in this fishing expedition. Uh, The three that are named, interestingly, are the three who previously in the gospel records have given explicit testimonies. Uh, Peter was the one who said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thomas, in the previous chapter, remember doubting Thomas, uh, when he touched the Lord's wounds, said, my Lord and my God. And then Nathaniel, back at the very beginning of the Gospel of John, when Jesus met him for the first time, uh, said, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. So these seven have gathered together, uh, not sure where the other four are, uh, but Peter announces he's going fishing, 
And they all say, we'll go with you. Notwithstanding his denial of Jesus, he apparently uh, still seems to lead the disciples. Maybe he's one of those guys who just can't help himself. Uh, But Jesus shows up on shore. They fail in the fishing expedition, by the way, and and that could be paid attention to. Uh, But Jesus shows up on shore. He's initially unrecognized, and that's not all that surprising because he was 100 yards off, but it accords with the way that Mary didn't recognize him. And there's another incident in the Gospel of Luke where uh, he is walking with, Jesus is walking with two disciples and they don't recognize him. So there's a lot of stuff that happens in this passage uh, that echo other portions uh, of the Gospel narratives. And I think it's good to pay attention to that. Um, At another time, actually back in Luke chapter 5, Jesus had directed them to a great catch after their normal efforts have failed. So this is all kind of coming together, uh, coalescing post-resurrection. So John recognizes Jesus, maybe remembering that other catch, and he tells Peter, and I think it's a, it's a somewhat comical action, uh, that Peter leaps into the water. It says that he puts on his outer garment and throws himself into the sea. Uh, you and I often remove our outer garments before we go swimming, uh, but, Jesus, but Peter does just the opposite. He puts it on and throws himself uh, into the ocean, and we'll talk more about that uh, in a minute. There are three things that I want to notice uh, in the passage, pay attention to this morning. Uh, there are actually dozens of things we could look at, but I want to look at three. Uh, one is the welcome, uh, one is the restoration And the third thing is the urgency. Uh, So first, uh, the welcome. Uh, Jesus says, come to the table. Uh, He greets them warmly in verse 5. It's it's kind of an interesting translation. Uh, He calls them children. It's probably not the way we would use the word children. Uh, Maybe more. It's it's very friendly. It's very casual. It, it, It presumes a relationship. What do you do when you get together uh, with a group of friends and greet them. How, what do you call them? Sometimes uh, men will get together and address each other gentlemen, you know, and it indicates a certain level of affection and camaraderie. In the UK, uh, they will refer to each other as lads. They say, lads, let's go fishing, and, and, uh, or lads, did you catch any fish? But it's a warm greeting, uh, and then he kind of reminds them of who he is by telling them to throw the nets over the starboard side of the boat, and all the fish in the sea swim into it uh, after they have stayed away the whole night, Uh, and he gives them a very profitable catch. That's what they're doing. They're fishing in order to make a living. Um, But when they get to shore, the fire is already laid, the meal is prepared, Uh, there's fish and there's bread, and that again is resonant of other times. Uh, Maybe when you read that he gave them bread, you're thinking of the Lord's Supper, Uh, but this might even be a little bit more reflective of the feeding of the 5,000, because there's fish involved as well. And he says, come and have breakfast. And again, let's appreciate the informality of that, and and hence the beauty of it. Uh, You know, actually, there's nothing like breakfast waiting for you, is there? It's a great thing to get up and find that someone has cared enough for you to prepare breakfast for you. Even better when you've had to get outside the house and do some chores or run an errand and you come back and their breakfast is laid out for you. Um, I want to underscore this simply 
uh, because this is what Jesus does. He warmly welcomes those who will come to him. And if you hear anything this morning, hear a warm welcome. And it's not insignificant here that he welcomes them to a meal because he's welcoming you to a meal as well. Now, we won't have the Lord's Supper this morning, but we will next week come back and enjoy the meal to which uh, Jesus invites you. This meal stuff is a big deal in the Bible, and I'm not going to dive into it. I'm just going to say go and research it yourself. It all starts way back in Exodus when God hosts a meal for the elders of Israel, Uh, but it really culminates, well, maybe it culminates in the book of Revelation at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Uh, But the apex of it in the gospel narratives is that Last Supper. But there's all other kinds of places where great things happen at a meal. And that accords with um, Near Eastern culture. That accords with the importance of hospitality, the importance of a meal. So the Apostle Paul will say in Romans 15 that we Christians are to welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So let's just lay that as a groundwork for what we're going to look at, that Christ has welcomed us. He has welcomed you. Now, the second thing to look at is this restoration. And again, this is something we could spend a lot of time on, uh, and we won't. But Jesus asks Simon Peter, do you love me? You might remember Psalm 23. When I was a kid, we actually read this and recited it in elementary school. Uh, It was kind of the norm. And if there there were two things in the Bible that I knew, the Lord's Prayer and the 23rd Psalm. Uh, But you remember it starts, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters and he restores my soul. Uh, Jesus here is restoring Peter's soul. He is the good and kind shepherd Uh, he's good, but he's better. Uh, He is kind, but he's kinder uh, than you would expect. Uh, The first question probes to the depth. Uh, He says, Simon, son of John, and it is interesting that he uses his formal name. I don't know why. I know that I use my kids' formal names when they're in trouble, as my parents use my formal name. Uh, Maybe Peter's in trouble. Who knows? But he addresses him, Simon, son of John, not Peter, not Cephas, not anything informal. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And this, I think, without question, is a reflection on Peter's boast. You know, he had boasted really the last time he was with Jesus. If everyone else leaves you, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to stand firm. And this is where, just kind of take a step back and appreciate the gravity of what's taking place here. Peter had boasted in his own devotion, had boasted in his own fidelity. And we are prone to this. This is woven into the fabric of what it means to be human, sadly so woven into the fabric of what it means to be a fallen human being is that you are ever prone to boast. So when the apostle says, may I never boast except in the cross of Christ, uh, that's the evidence of a transformed personality. 
That's the evidence of a new life. That's the evidence of a private resurrection that has taken place in the Apostle Paul. Because we are always ready and prone to boast. The way I was raised, when you would confess your sins, you would always attach to that confession a firm resolve, a promise not to do it again. And I, it took a lot of thinking and a lot of praying and a lot of confessing and coming to Christ personally uh, for me to realize that what I'd been doing all along is that I had been saying, God, you can forgive me on the basis of my good intention never to do it again. The foundation of your forgiveness can be my boast. Well, it takes you a long time, but it's a good time to realize that that boast is so deeply flawed, uh, it can't stand for the foundation of anything. Well, here Peter has boasted, and Jesus doesn't leave that unmentioned. He cuts right to the heart. He puts Peter's boasting on the table. He does not politely not mention it. You know, a lot of times that's what happens in our own relationships. You know, uh, you might do somebody wrong or someone might do you wrong, and they come and they apologize to you, and you say, don't mention it. It's okay. It's fine. Let's not go there. You're forgiven. And it's a quick Sometimes gracious, but usually a little bit dismissive kind of forgiveness. Jesus is not going to forgive Peter in that way. He says, let's get it on the table. Do you love me more than the rest? And it's interesting that the real issue of love for Christ is probed. Not Peter's behavior, but his disposition. He's not challenging him about what he did. He's asking about who he is. And there is within Peter and within you and me an agonizing conflict between disposition and behavior. That's always the case. It is always the case in every one of us. If we are honest, every day we can ask ourselves, have we behaved in a way that reflects our disposition? Have we acted in a way that is consistent with what we say we believe? Again, this is the the conflict of humanity. You're not alone in this. And Jesus throws it out to Peter. And it's not that Peter's love cancels out the sin. That would be antithetical to the gospel. It's not as though he needs to love in order to deal with the sin. That's not it. It's just more the sense of Jesus is saying, I'm going to expose this. I'm going to expose your sin in the presence of your professed love. And human weakness is on display. And it is into this display of human weakness that the grace of God rushes in. Because Jesus is loving Peter here. He's loving him to the full. He's loving him, as it says elsewhere, to the end. And so Peter doesn't boast in return. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus says, feed my lambs. Now, there's a whole lot to be unpacked there that we don't have time for. You want to go to lunch next week, I'm open. But Jesus then asks him basically the same question two more times. 
wants to hear it three times from Peter's mouth. And that has to reflect the threefold denial. Peter, you denied me three times, so let me hear it from you uh, three times. Do you love me? Again, not making light of the seriousness of the sin, but demonstrating the sufficiency of Jesus' forgiveness to cover even a threefold denial. And Peter's response each time is devoid of boasting, but it rests on the Lord knowing all things. Lord, you know. Uh, in a sense, he's, he's echoing the psalm that says, search my heart, O God. See if there's any wicked way in me. He's, he's asking Jesus. He's giving him access. Lord, you know. And the commission every time is for Peter to get back to his calling as an apostle, to feed and to take care of the flock. And it sets an example of leadership that is marked by brokenness, of leadership that is marked by that ongoing awareness of the contrast and even the, uh, the discontinuity, that's a bad word, between what we say we believe and the way that we actually act. Knowing that, being aware of that, is the mark of leadership. It's going to be the mark of Peter's leading the church. And this is really just a small vignette of the whole Bible. This is what the whole Bible has been teaching from the very beginning to the very end. Sinners returning and finding against their expectations a readiness on the basis of Christ's sacrifice to forgive. That's the Bible in a nutshell. Jesus' death on the cross was multifaceted, and we could go into that in great detail. We could unpack a a season of Sunday school classes uh, on what happened in the death of Christ, but it is primarily, it is essentially, before all else, a substitutionary atonement. Uh, Jesus dying for the sins of his people. There was a prophecy uttered 800 years prior uh, to the crucifixion where the prophet said he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. And faith in Jesus, hear me on this, faith in Jesus is simply connecting yourself to his death and resurrection so that your sins are forgiven, having been punished in him, and you live a new life that arises out of his perfection and life that he gives you. You know, we often, I think, misunderstand that promise, you know, that God loved the world so much that He sent His only Son so that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. We think eternal life is simply a matter of living forever. That's not what it is. A better way to translate that would be so that they would not perish but rather receive a life that is fit for eternity, that they would experience and receive a real life, the life of Jesus, the resurrection life of Jesus. That's what faith is. Faith is not this vague hope. I come from a town where quite a bit is invested in the local professional sports teams. The marketers have done a great job uh, grabbing our hearts and making us feel as though it's a matter of civic duty that we pull for our teams. Maybe Atlanta's the same way, I don't know. But, you know, in the crux of the playoffs, there will always be a billboard that says, just believe. 
just believe. And the word believe is corrupted into something weird, hoping that my team wins. That's not what the Bible means by those who believe. It's those who entrust themselves to Christ such that his death is the substitute for the death they deserve, and his life is the corresponding gift by which they live forever. That's what Jesus is doing with Peter. He's connecting him to his death and resurrection. So the last thing to look at, and it'll be brief, is simply this urgency. The urgency of someone who is messed up in a big way. And again, I don't know if you can calculate. I mean, a lot of you have messed up. All of you have messed up. Preachers are allowed to say that. To be honest, we'd have to say all of us have messed up. And some of us in very big ways, some of us in ways that have driven a nail into our consciences so that you can barely stand to put one foot in front of the other uh, because of the, the latent shame of that. Well, you know, in some ways, I want to say whatever it is that you have done, uh, it probably is not weighing on your conscience as severely as did Peter's denial of the Lord. And I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but there is an interesting description in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I won't read it, but uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to them, and he's saying, you know, I'm glad that you were wounded by the letter that I wrote you because it produced such great results. And he talks about the difference between a worldly sorrow which leads to death and a godly sorrow which leads to repentance and brings life with no regret. And again, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that it's scholars, Bible teachers, will often go to that passage and say, you know, this sounds like he's describing the difference between Judas and Peter. Both betrayed the Lord. Both betrayed the Lord in grievous ways. Judas, when he realized what he had done, went out and killed himself. That's the worldly sorrow that leads to death. But Peter, ostensibly, experienced a godly sorrow which led to repentance, faith, life, and eventually no regret. Now, again, Peter's a notable character in the gospel accounts. You might not know this, but uh, you can really have a fun study to sit down with your Bible and look up everywhere that Peter occurs uh, in the gospel accounts and also in the book of Acts and, and later on and then read his letters. Uh, he seems to be the spokesman for the disciples. He presumes to advise Jesus against his mission. That's an amusing but alarming scenario. He's a little boastful. He's impetuous. He even tried to walk on water one time. Uh, but he is singled out by Satan for sifting. The Lord curiously says, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you. Uh, so he's a singular person in this. And again, he has uh, betrayed the Lord. He has denied the Lord three times. And as I understand it, and I think as anyone would understand it, there has been no time with Jesus since that moment. Now, there were times in a group, but there hasn't been any alone time. And if I can speculate, I think Peter wants that alone time. And so, 
unceremoniously, even comically, pulls on this outer garment, and <laughs> I love the language in the Bible, throws himself into the sea. He's got to get there first. And I want you to understand this morning that that is a great picture of faith. Again, the last personal interaction he had with Jesus was to look, the look across the courtyard after the third denial. Words need to be said. We don't know what he actually said. Maybe he said nothing. Uh, but we have this great, comical, desperate, audacious act of faith. He throws himself into the sea. And this is how the gospel works. Faith is essentially passive. Essentially, faith receives. That's what faith does. It receives what is on offer uh, in Christ's death and resurrection. But while faith is essentially passive, it's all, it always acts. It's always doing something. In this case, running, or maybe the better word would be swimming to Jesus. The Christian walk is not the perfection of a holy life. It just isn't. And if you're getting somewhere close to it, I want to warn you that you're probably deluding yourself. It is not the perfection of a holy life, but it's the stumblings and the repentances and the gracious welcome backs of a back-and-forth relationship with Jesus, a real relationship, not simply a construct of values, not simply a construct of propositions, but a real relationship. You know, that complicated quote that's on the front page of your bulletin from Richard Hooker, you know, makes the point at the end, and he's making the point that God will permit stumbling and grievous stumbling in order to address pride. But then at the end of it, he asks you to take a look at Peter. And he says, Peter's soul will undoubtedly make you this answer. My eager protestations made in the glory of my ghostly strength, that was his boast, I am ashamed of. But those crystal tears wherewith my sin and weakness was bewailed have procured my endless joy. My strength has been my ruin and my fall my stay. Amazingly, Peter's stumblings are not over. Uh, we're told in the New Testament of at least one more time uh, when he stumbles and stumbles grievously and the Apostle Paul has to confront him and has to stand against him. But you have to love the man for the tenacity of his faith. He keeps bouncing back. He has audacity. Audacity is a good word to attach to faith. You know, one of my favorite uh, sporting events, and this is a long time ago, I really date myself on this, was when the first American, Greg LeMond, won the Tour de France. Uh, it was a great day for anyone who rode a bicycle that day. And apparently on the last day, he had to catch up with this superstar named Fignon, and, uh, and it was virtually impossible for him to catch him, but he did. And uh, when I read the accounts, there was apparently a Frenchman who kept yelling at him and running to catch up and cutting across the infield, and he would be shouting to him in French, and I, I won't torture the language, but he said, audacity, audacity, and still more audacity. 
Well, you know, the audacity that it took Lamont to win that bicycle race that day is nothing compared to the audacity to which this picture of Jesus' welcome and his restoration will call you. Don't give up. Your shame you might feel pointedly in your own soul, and Satan will take advantage of that. It is said that he accuses the brothers and the sisters day and night before the throne of God. What must that look like? When you and I feel that accusation, uh, Peter will tell you to ignore that accusation and get yourself to Jesus as quickly as you can. If you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to come to Jesus and enjoy His gracious welcome. And I want to say, come quickly. Come, come quickly. At some point, it'll be too late. So come quickly. But if you are a Christian, I want to say, in a sense, the same thing. You need to get to Jesus. We need uh, faith, faith with more audacity. And only a view of a great and wonderful and compassionate and powerful, raised from the dead Savior will do that for us. And if you see how great He is, you might find uh, yourself set free. Uh, You will find that your fears will erode. You will catch the sweet, clean fragrance of the freedom of the children of God. You might even find enough to lay down your own life to pick up your cross and follow Him. You know, a big part of our national and international polarization is the incitement of fear. Uh, We read about it every day if you pay attention to the news. Somebody's trying to make you afraid. Uh, We are invited to be afraid of the political party that we oppose, uh, to be afraid of secularization, to be afraid of woke culture, to be afraid of the devastation of the sexual revolution. And all of those things, to be sure, are matters of great concern. But are you afraid? Do you get angry? Does that fear mean that you will not engage with people with whom you disagree, that you can't even stand to be in the same room with them? Uh, The resurrection of Jesus is the cancellation of fear. Jesus is risen from the dead, and so you need not be afraid. I got involved in a Bible memorization project when I was a new Christian, and one of the first verses that was put in that little packet of verses that I would memorize. It was Isaiah 41.10, and I'm glad that it's a bedrock. It's where the Lord says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is the message of Easter. At the end of Peter's first letter, He writes this doxology. Uh, He admonishes the pastors regarding their shepherding of the flock, and he writes this, and the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen? Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, what a morning. 
We look forward to the day when there is nothing hindering uh, physical incapacity or guilt or shame or even the nagging effects of sin, that there will be nothing to hinder our full-throated, unabashed, purely joyful uh, worship of you. Until then, uh, would you enliven the church? Would you give grace to those who struggle? Would you enable those who are riddled with guilt and shame to step away from it uh, the way that Peter steps away from it here by going to Jesus? Father, for those whose hearts are impenetrable, we know the Spirit can penetrate any heart. We pray that you would uh, do this for your own glory. for the joy of the church, for the satisfaction of your people, and for the benefit of the communities in which we live. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.